Improving group experience. Group facilitation and attendance is a hallmark component when it comes to recovery from substance use and other behaviors. While many facilitators focus on providing evidence-based curriculums, doesn't mean they are leading to effective outcomes for patients. Andrew Bort, an expert in group facilitation and engagement strategies, talks about the need to improve the group experience for everyone in order to help more patients heal and find lasting recovery. Our guest for this episode is Andrew Bort, who is an ex- expert in group facilitation and engagement strategies who holds a master's in education, is a licensed educator, and has certifications through Columbia University Teachers College and Cambridge University. His first experience with group therapy and recovery meetings was as a patient, and now he is dedicated to help those close a gap in current clinical training and help clinicians develop the facilitation skills necessary to help more patients heal and find lasting recovery. You can learn more about Andrew Bort by following him on LinkedIn at Andrew Bort. You can also go to grouptherapycertification.com, and you can also find him on TikTok at IAGT Clinical Training. This is Talking Addiction and Recovery, the podcast talking, you guessed it, all about addiction and recovery. Join your host, licensed professional counselor, Andrew J. Schreier, as he and his guests break down recovery topics with raw honesty, delving into niche conversations around the topics of substance abuse, mental health, and gambling. We intend to meet individuals where they are on their own personal journey of recovery with dignity, respect, and compassion. We'll do more than talk addiction and recovery. We'll explore it. We're glad you've joined us. Here with today's episode, your host, Andrew Schreier. Well, from one Andrew to another, I'm I'm excited to have Andrew Bort as a guest on Talking Addiction and Recovery podcast. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I was when we got connected on on LinkedIn and started like going back and forth on some things and seeing what each of us done. What stands out with your work, which I'm super excited to talk about, is group facilitation. And my my listeners might not know this because I haven't really, you know, took a lot of time to talk about it, but I love doing groups and I've been doing groups. It was the first thing I ever did when I was 19 years old. I was in my second year of college. I got my practicum, like my internship first one. And I remember the, the first day I came in, they had a group that night and they were like, you're going to run group tonight. And no training, no like education outside of like what we talked about in school. It was kind of like a, a thrown to the wolves type of thing. But over the years, I've worked in a lot of programs where there's, you know, heavy groups as part of the the treatment. I'm curious, what is your interest with, with group facilitation and, and group counseling? Well, my interest stems from my experience as a group facilitator, and I'm not specifically talking about therapy. I'm talking about leading populations of people towards a a common goal. So I was a Disney trainer, and I've done Fortune 100 business trainings. 
I've also taught multiple age groups. And so I know the the struggles that people face when they are leading groups of people, especially, you know, if some of them don't want to be there or, you know, if they're maybe not bought in, you know, when we're talking about substance abuse and addiction, you know, you might have some people in the group that are not committed to abstinence. And so how do you get them motivated to build a recovery uh, prevention or a relapse prevention plan or a continuing recovery plan? And, you know, just dealing with all of the different group dynamics, you know, you've got uh, the reading levels will be different, different levels of education, cultural expectations, right? Speeds of working memory. You're, there are so many intricate facets that go into group dynamics. How do we engage that entire room and get them moving towards a common goal? And, you know, when it comes to uh, SUD treatment, you know, as I told you, I have personal experience with that myself and I've been through treatment. And what I really learned through that process is I, I think we're as a field looking at this kind of negatively, right? There's this idea that we say, well, recovery is possible. Actually, recovery is probable. You know, there was a study just recently in 2020 by the CDC and uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse that found three out of four people find recovery. You know, that's 75%. So when when I look at statistics like that, and I look at how we as human beings learn, I think we have some control over that, right? So if it takes between 30 days and 250 days to establish a new routine, we have some control. So what can we do to really utilize that group time and maximize it so we can help patients recover faster? We can help them rewire their brains quickly using proven methods like uh, interleaving, and uh, fire it to wire it repetition practice. I mean, there's just, there's so many things we can do to push them in the right direction. And that that's what I'm trying to share with uh, you and your listeners. Yeah, one thing that stands out from the get-go is the terms with group. Do they get intermingled too much? Do people say they're doing this type of group when it's really like, are we doing enough to know what types of groups we are attempting to hold and facilitate and then also educating attendees about what that is because it sometimes it's like is this a support group is this a a therapy group like is this a group that we're doing for like education is there a does that word get thrown around too much without actually proper identification and acknowledgement of like what the purpose of this group is I think it does, but it, that's going to be up to the individual clinician, but also they have to realize that groups need to be flexible, right? No group is going to be exactly the same. You might have the same topic for three groups in a row and they'll go very, very differently, right? And there might be a psychoeducational group. You might label it where someone drops something very heavy and, you know, moments of process affordance are needed, right? And then what do you do? Do you stick to your manual or do you be a human being and, you know, show some compassion? Like you said, even yourself, you got no training on groups. And so one thing that's, that's actually the norm, right? There is a gap in clinical training when it comes to facilitation and stuff like that. And so what, what I would say is nothing happens in a vacuum, right? You can absolutely process during a psychoeducational or a CBT group, right? There's, we shouldn't box anything in because, you know, the, the goal is helping people find recovery. And sure, 
you know, processing goes into that. So does education. So does skill building. And so the more that we can blend these things together to have patients experience them, regardless of the group type, the better it's going to be for the patients. One question that I've, I've wanted to ask you since we, since we started talking about doing this episode is, is every person appropriate for group? That is a fantastic question. Um, well, what I would say is probably, probably not initially, right? I mean, if you have, if, if there is someone with a co-occurring disorder uh, or someone who cannot make it through the group, it might be better if they're not there initially. And what I mean by that is, I mean, the, the same thing you go in any learning situation or a situation where you have a group of people together. If one person is disrupting it for everybody else, they need to be removed, right? So there are some things that we as facilitators can do to manage those kind of situations where, you know, whether it be, you know, talking to the person one-on-one -on -one or, um, you know, trying to establish norms. But if if one person or two people are completely derailing the situation, becoming violent or, you know, throwing things around, is it better for that person to maybe not be there for the benefit of everyone? I would say yes. But again, that's going to be a personal decision uh, based on the facilitator. And I've seen it. And the reason I want to ask this, because I've seen it where I've worked for different organizations in my time where there were no groups and we worked to implement more groups mm -hmm. at our at our treatment facilities so there we wanted to get more counselors to provide them we wanted to get you know more more patients to attend and it seemed like a lot of it in many instances not all it was very like cookie cutter where everyone needs to go to group because group is beneficial for everyone because it is what is used for to treat all you know like addiction it was very blanket cookie cutter where all of a sudden clinicians were working to get people into group who were maybe not ready for it maybe they were you know an example where they they were going to be more of a distraction or a hindrance for the group also like thinking of like trauma-informed care where I you know so it, i always struggle when there's this, this message or this, this goal or plan to just all of a sudden take all patients or, or participants and just kind of blanket throw, well, they all need to be in group. Mm -hmm. Well, again, the skill of the facilitator plays an important role here. And so, okay. So a lot of what we're doing, if you think back the last time that there has been a significant uh, growth or evolution of group therapy was in 1970. You know, Yalom released, you know, the, his wonderful work. And, you know, we got to learn about the stages of groups. And and that 1970 was a very long time ago. The average price of a home was $27,000. You know, the demographics of the United States. I mean, we have evolved so much as a society. And that's why I think it's important that we start talking about the facilitation skills. And I mentioned the um, research on, you know, 75% of people recover, but there's another article, and I'm, I wouldn't mind sending you the links to these in case you want to post them in the comments, by Dr. Kathleen Carroll, the late Dr. Kathleen Carroll, who uh, was at Yale University uh, Addiction Studies. 
And she said that, you know, most clinicians who run group, they think they're delivering evidence-based practices effectively. But after independent raters listened to over 700 hours of taped therapy sessions, it turns out they're really just engaging in chat. And so if clinicians, I mean, I believe everyone's trying, you know, we're here for the right reasons and we're trying to help people recover, but everybody wants to be as effective as their job as possible, right? And if they think they're doing something the right way, but in fact they aren't, that's that's kind of what we're here to try to address. We want to get people those facilitation skills so they can deliver evidence-based practices effectively to help more people recover. You know, a lot has changed. We've had so much research in, since 1970. Society has changed. The population demographics has changed. We we need to start looking at groups differently. So that sparks two questions for me. One, why is it that we've seen advances in this field in mm-hmm. several other areas with like, this is how it was before. This is what we know now, which means, you know, we need to make some changes and adjustments. Why is it that group has been stagnant? Yeah. Like, can you just give some, some insight or something as to why group has, hasn't really, you know, progressed forward with, with other areas that we've seen in this field? Well, again, this will be, this will be my opinion, but I would say it's complacency, you know, if, okay. So it can be uncomfortable if you actually have to start looking at data and you maybe you realize, well, I'm not as effective as I thought I was. That's that's not a that's not a good feeling, right? Everybody wants to be effective. Even, you know, when I was teaching, I mean, this might have been 10, 15 years ago, where I thought, wow, I'm fantastic at this. You know, my students love me, uh, my scores are okay. I'm I'm great. But then I went through a very, very effective training through Disney. And they started having me ask some questions before I even started any sort of session. And those questions were, you know, what do I want? What do I want these people to be able to do by the end of this? How will I know if they've accomplished that? And what does this have to do with the overall goal? So in the case of recovery, would it would be, what do I want my patients to do by the end of this session? How will I know if they've been, if they've done that or not? And why are we doing this in the first place? How does it connect to recovery? So when I started asking those questions of myself, I realized I wasn't as effective as I thought I was. I might have still been effective overall, but I was you know, missing three or four students that weren't getting it at all, right? And once I started realizing that, then I could change what I was doing to help meet their needs a little bit better. And again, when you have 12 people in the room from all different backgrounds, some have been in treatment five times, some it's their first time, is me just reading from a manual the most effective way to reach them? And the answer is absolutely not. You know, the a lot of times it's written in very complex language. Even when it comes to uh, open-ended elicitation questions, which I, I find in a lot of curriculums, um, and they're fantastic. How do you pose that to the group, right? If you have a question as simple as what does recovery you know, you know mean to you? Are you just going to read it out loud? and have one person answer and everybody else kind of zone out or kind of hum, hum and ho, right? Or are you, are you going to have them turn to the person next to them and discuss it? So now you have everybody talking, or are you going to have 
two people come up with a definition they agree with and then try to convince other people to join them. Now you have, uh, you know, everybody's engaged and, and talking about it. They're reinforcing the neural links and you're building empathy with other point of views. I mean, there's there's so many different ways you can deliver even an open-ended question to make it more effective for everybody in that room. Yeah, one of my, uh, and I this is one of my favorite groups that I've ever styles I've done it where we used to do like a family day where we would have like a, a four hour day, you know, par patients would invite family members, you know, parents, loved ones to come to learn more about like treatment, substance use, you know, all this type of stuff. And I would have everyone sit in a big circle. So this would be like 40, 50 people all of a sudden that we would have in this, this circle. And I would have a, a volleyball that I wrote numbers on it and those numbers had questions, but what got it to be interactive was I would toss it to a random person and then that person would toss it to some other random person. So a couple of things happened with that is like everyone was paying attention because they didn't like they could be called on next or they could be all of a sudden it could be someone right next to you that you would think wouldn't give you the ball, but they would just be like, toss it over or it'd be like on the other side of the room, but it got people more engaged. They didn't know what the questions were ahead of time. So they had to pay attention. So that all of a sudden they weren't like, wait, wait, what was that? They, they were involved in it. And I always think what ended up being great about it was I had to do not a lot of talking. I asked questions and then the rest of it was everyone else that was a part of it. I think groups are better when, when the facilitator isn't spending the majority of time, like trying to get through a class, talking it through. Oh, you're a hundred percent there. The research actually backs up everything you just said. So, so two points for the first one, the ball throw is something that one of the techniques that we actually teach at the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. And it's for the same reason that you said, if I ask Johnny a question, you know, Johnny, how are you feeling today? Only Johnny's considering the answer, right? So we want everybody to be considering the answer because according to neuroscience, once again, the first requirement for any growth at all is conscious attention. If you are not paying attention to something initially, there's no way that you're going to remember it or process it or anything else. I mean, that's why you know, commercials turn up the volume or, or they turn up the volume when it's time to show commercials or, you know, you want to use engagement strategies to catch people's attention in the beginning, because if they're not paying attention, then they're not going to learn anything. And actually as humans, like we zone out all the time. You probably heard this if you've read some of my stuff, but uh, have you ever zoned out while you were driving a car and just found yourself pulling into the driveway, right? And so the reason this happens is your brain is trying to uh, conserve energy and it will zone out whenever it can, right? And so we want people, especially in groups, when there's a tendency for you know one person to be talking at a time, th things like that, and that's a, something we're really trying to get away from, um, uh, to, you know, you, you need to find those strategies, those techniques to keep them paying attention. A ball throw is great. Um, the second point was the talk time. You are completely right on that. And, you know, even if we look at uh, William Miller's work with motivational interviewing, his research shows that the more empathetic a therapist is, which means they spend their time listening and asking questions, as you said, 
not only do patient resistant behaviors go down, but the positive change talk goes up and the positive change talk that patients will have in therapy directly correlates with their success outside recovery. So absolutely a hundred percent get that therapist talk time down and the patient talk time up. So this, this, I'm tying this into this concept where facilitators and professionals like think they're providing like evidence-based or, or really good groups. Is that partially because I'm going to speak from my own experience that I'm using a evidence-based curriculum. I'm following the curriculum. This mm -hmm. must mean that I'm providing an evidence because I've been, you know, when I started and where I am now, you know, I've gone through trainings with like different curriculums and different things. And some of them are very much like read this page word right. for mm -hmm. word, like don't, and, and it's like, do the same thing again. The next session, don't, improv it don't don't break away from it to do those things so i think when sometimes we go through trainings there is this belief that if i do as i'm told with like going through the curriculum following through it step by step check off like the homework assignment did you have them do this that in my mind or some some clinician's mind they're thinking that's what it means to provide an evidence-based group that is exactly correct. Um, and that's that's part of it, right? Uh, so there's because of the lack of facilitation training, uh, the lack of training when it comes to group dynamics and really how to differentiate based on the individual people you have in front of you, people will feel like, okay, if I just follow this manual, uh, then I must be doing a good job. That is not the case. And the reason that is, is again, because all of those people in the room are very, very different. And even, you know, some of the most expensive and established curriculums I've seen, they do not incorporate practice time into the groups, especially when we're looking at something like CBT building or something like that. So, you know, you have, you take restructuring negative thoughts, right? Anybody can do that in isolation, but if you want that to become a habit, you really need to set up authentic practice opportunities. The same with I statements. It's much different to create an I statement if you're just sitting there in a classroom kind of environment versus if you're having a heated argument with somebody. And so we really need to move away from just following the, the manual line by line and incorporate some tried and true elicitation, engagement techniques, and deliberate practice opportunities to really set patients up for success. I mean, the relapse and the recidivism rates are, are very, very high right now. Why, do, why does somebody need to go into treatment six or seven or eight times before it finally sets in? You know, one theory is by the eighth time, they've actually had enough practice. What if we can get them more practice in the first time, the second time? How many lives could we save? Yeah. So one, one group I want to share with you because it, it was from a tiny bit of a curriculum that I, when I can, I would go off, off, off page and kind of do my own thing. But I, it was, it was one of my favorite ones. So it was all about thought counters, right? Like we have thoughts about like, I can have just one or it's not enough. And like, how do you argue with those thoughts? How do you counter them? Like in your mind? Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I did this group for a while and I started like kind of formulated and, and kind of worked on like, how do I get this to be more interactive? They can actually practice and learn this. So here's, 
here's what we would do. And this was, I just want to know your take on this. We would have each participant step away from the group for a little bit. The group would come up with a scenario that based on what this person has talked about that we would think is like a high risk situation, right? Mm -hmm. Like this person may have talked about old peers. Maybe they talked about um, a, a relationship that they had where they, they use with this person. So the group took what this person often discussed and we, we kind of came up with a scenario. This is what happened. Then we would go around and each other group members would identify one thought that would sort of support like a return to use. So, you know, well, she's doing it too, or, you know, um, you know, everyone else is, so what's the big deal or, you can get away with it. No one's going to say anything like they would all create these thoughts, right? That supported the use. What we would do is have the person come back in the room. We would read the scenario. Then we would go through thought by thought and see how they would counter each one. And what I started doing is I started timing how long it took them to come up with a counter. To see like all of a sudden someone could come up with one very easily in like three seconds, they could come up with like a counter, but then there'd be ones where it took them like 10 seconds and we would process like, why did that one take so long compared to others? And the person would be like, that was a really hard one. Like, I don't know what I would say to that. And we would do this like a couple times over and over again to where when they walked out of that group or when they were done with that group topic, we could see like improvement in their ability to, to have thought counters that they could demonstrate and show in front of a group. Now that would never have happened if I stuck to the, the worksheet. <laughs> okay. There's a couple reasons that, that, that is a fantastic activity. Okay. One of them, you have a connection to real life experience. Okay. So when, whenever we're designing activities for group sessions, we always look at the four principles of adult learning, which is motivation, connection to life experience, autonomy, and real world problem solving. And so you have a lot of that going on in here. When you have um, the other group members, you know, creating these scenarios, they're doing real world problem solving, right? There's obviously a connection to life experience with the individual who's restructuring those thoughts. And also, you know, the autonomy to, you know, come up with your own response. Now, there's one area when where we see restructuring negative thoughts that uh, a lot of clinicians, and I'm not sure about this case, um, there that kind of tends to be a sticking point where they'll accept a, a patient just giving the opposite answer, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a horrible person. I'm a great person. And so when, when we look at that as a facilitator, that's not effective because one, um, we don't believe the patient actually believes that. And so we're looking for evidence, right? Yeah. I'm a good person or I can be a good person because last week my mom was sick and I took care of her and I took, I took her soup or, you know what I mean? Or last week, my friend really needed help. And even though I was tired, I picked up a shift for him. Right. And so uh, restructuring the thoughts with evidence that we know the patient believes it is the most important thing, but the activity on its own. Fantastic. And that the sad part about that is I had to like, kind of make that fit in work without really making that 
you know, I had to find a way to, to manage that, right? Like this was what we were doing for group this day. Cause you know, things are documented, all that type of stuff. How do we balance between that? Here's like the curriculum. Here's what we're, you know, clinicians are told they're supposed to, to follow and walk through. Cause I've also seen it where clinicians are evaluated based on following the curriculum. Right. Not, they're not always evaluated based on what is actually happening, happening with, or outcomes. Yeah. Right. So how do we get, how do we balance this better to where we are doing things that's evidence-based, but it's not that old paradigm or the current, you know, model of follow the curriculum and you're good. Like what, what recommendations do you have to tip the scales more in, in our favor? Well, there's two main things. One is training and the other is organizational buy-in. So the idea that someone should be evaluated based on how well they can read from a book is sad and it's wrong. And that's something that we need to change. And that's one thing at the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy, we're really pushing, right? We, we need the executives to hear this podcast too, because it is up to them if they want to invest in their staff for, for training, but really in organizational change altogether. Because you know the activity that you just told me about that's fantastic. And of course, we can't really know this if, if there were no outcomes tracking for it, but you, you running that, you might've saved some people's lives. Now, imagine, you know, three rooms over, someone is giving the exact same topic, but they're just reading from the curriculum. This kind of thing snowballs, right? And so it is fantastic to hear that, you know, you as a group facilitator, you have some of those skills already, you know, and some people are more naturally comfortable with leading groups of people while it, it scares the crap out of others. You know what I mean? And so regardless of, of how comfortable you are facilitating, you know, the, the training that we provide, we really hammer in those skills and all of them, again, are, are evidence-based. I, I think it's important for people to know, especially those listeners who are in recovery or early stages of recovery, is it's true. The addicted brain does go through changes, but your brain also changes if you learn a new language. Your brain also changes if you pick up a new habit, a good habit or a bad habit. There, those changes are only permanent if you keep going, if you keep doing them. We can reroute the brain. People do it all the time. Recovery is possible. We want to be looking at what are the ways that we can help uh, be the catalyst for that rewiring. And we do have proven methods. And so we need to start using them in groups to help more people recover faster. Is there a sweet spot for the amount of time that? you know, making those changes and develop and learning and doing it effectively shows because I think sometimes there are groups that occur not very often. They're pretty infrequent. But then there are, there are times where I've also seen programs that are very, you know, heavy lifting with group where I'm not sure if the brain can keep paying attention to all of that type of stuff. So I, on one end, I'm like, is there, is this enough that we're doing? But on the other end, I'm like, are we sometimes doing too much of it? Is there a, a sweet spot to where we would look at trying to, in general speaking, try to engage someone in a group or get someone to do group? Well, I mean, are you asking about the frequency of how many times a group is run or the overall structure of an individual session? 
Yeah, like in my mind, I'm thinking sometimes there was a group that would be held like once a week for an hour. And this group met for that one time, one hour. You know, sometimes, you know, they'd miss it and they'd come back again. But then I've also worked in programs where we ran five and a half to six hours of group per day for the individual. And I'm just trying to think like what's best for like the the mind and the brain and the the whole right. person because there is times where like when you mentioned like a you know attention span and and that buy-in and motivation that all of a sudden like you know four, five, six hours a group per day, five days a week can be exhausting. Right. And see, unfortunately, there there is no sweet spot because individuals are so different, right? See, so me as someone who I have ADHD, but I also have very high processing speed. I always enjoyed school. That was one of the areas like later in life. Well, that's not actually true. I, I hated school for a long time, but <laughs> later in life, I, I, I enjoyed school a lot. And so, um, you know, as an adult for me, I could definitely do that. Can my neighbor? Not necessarily. And so what's important to, to, to realize is what we do in groups is important, like how they're structured, you know, making sure we establish that conceptual framework that you're, you know, that you're checking prior knowledge, right? You don't want to find out 45 minutes into a session that someone has a completely different idea of the topic than, than you want them to, right? And making sure that there are scheduled breaks, whether that be a one minute transition from one activity to another, you don't want to be doing something for for too long. And, you know, as you as you as we were talking before, the world has changed a lot since 1970. People's attention spans with social media and all the other you cannot conceivably expect that 12 people sitting in a room, especially if they're an inpatient and, you know, maybe just got through detox, they're not going to sit there and listen to you read. They might look at you with a glazed <laughs> look in their eyes, but there's no way that they are processing or learning what you're trying, what you want them to, if you're just going to sit there and read to them. You, you I, need to mix it up. Yeah. And I think that's also where clinicians need, you know, to have different ways of, of reaching, you know, different people. So like, I always wanted to make sure I had a whiteboard mm -hmm. in in my group room, because it wasn't just to write down the things the curriculum said, but sometimes I would draw things like, like, um, there are times where I love role play when it's, when it's done right. But I, I always enjoyed role play because it just got you moving. It got you more into the feel of things. I remember I would, you know, pretend we were in a car driving and I would pull up two chairs and I'm sitting next to someone and we're doing like a role player. I used to do them with when they would meet with their probation officer. I would pretend to be their, their probation officer and they'd be sitting across from me. And we kind of set up this little like office, you know, there was things where we did the, like the ball where that would be sitting that I believed that it was important to do those things because not everyone processes information the same way. So if I kind of went around this variety of like visual audio, like active moving, you know, some of those things that it would just continue to sort of reach people in kind of like a steady dosage versus when you have ones that are so heavy on like one certain way of learning, you might, you might get some, but you're also going to miss a lot, a lot, which I'm always one that's like, even if this like, 
this works for 60% of the people. I'm still like, what about the 40? Like, that's great for the 60, but I, I don't want to ignore the 40 for the greater amount of, of the, the group. So does that, does that, is that something that we need to do? Need more flexibility with how we, you know, teach, educate, and facilitate with those different skills? If you want to reach everyone, 100%. And so if you think of information, whether it be knowledge or skill, if you think of it like a highway, if I just tell you something and I built that, I built you an on-ramp to that highway. But if you forget what I said, you've lost all access to the knowledge, skill, the information. If I tell you something, I show you something, I have you write it down. I have you talk about it with a partner. And then I put you in a small collaborative group of three to four people to do a problem solving activity around that topic. We now have six or seven on-ramps. Now, if you forget what I said, it's okay. There's a lot more, you have a lot more paths to access that information. And because people are different in the way, you know, that they, whether it be their speed of working memory or their own connection to their past experience, in order to be the most effective facilitator possible, you want to mix up the modalities of encoding as much as you can. And so, yes, what you are doing is absolutely correct. And on a note of the role play, role play is fantastic because it sets up authentic practice opportunities. Now, is there ways to do role play in group that's better than others? Absolutely. Like, I love the one that you talked about with the probation officer, but another one might be that is, you know, universal to everybody would be something like maybe a job interview or talking to your boss about a raise. You know, do we need to set up the situation where uh, just the therapist or maybe two patients are up in the hot seat going through this? It could be done that way. But if that were the case, I would give everybody else in the room a task. So while mm -hmm. we're watching them role play, I want everybody else to write down one thing you think that they did well and one area of advice that maybe they could improve. Of course, the alternative would be you split up everybody into pairs and everyone has a role and then we were all practicing at the same time. There's value in both of those, right? If, if a, a therapist is going to try to introduce role play for the first time, I might say, go with, go with the first model, right? And once you get more comfortable with it and people start, uh, you know, understanding the expectation, then you can kind of back away a little bit, have everybody talking at the same time. And then, you know, the clinician, the facilitator will go around and monitor those conversations. So many missed opportunities by patients sitting in silence. If you get everybody talking, think about all the information you could learn about them. And of course, will you hear it all? No, but you're going to hear none if they're just sitting there quiet. You hear nothing. Right. right. That, and I, and I enjoyed, I liked having, I usually did cause like role play is just right away kind of brings about like uncomfortable, like we're acting and I got to kind of be on the spot where people are going to like, it, it requires vulnerability. It does. It really does. Versus like some writing down an answer or something like that, like it, not that those can't, but role play kind of really opens up vulnerability in front of an audience like right there, like you're kind of like on stage when you're doing this. So I would normally kind of do it first with someone to sort of just get the, get the mood going, just kind of get people assign people to be like, Hey, you pay attention to this. Why don't you do this? And then I would really step away from that and get more of the other participants involved. And I would step back just to mm -hmm. be more of the observer 
And once in a while, they would be like, well, what would you do in this situation? And I might elicit, you know, ask other people like, hey, well, what what would you may have done? Or do you want to show us what you may have done? And then mm-hmm. once in a while, I might jump in to, to be a part of it. And at that point, you know, it, it just becomes people are learning, people are feeling more comfortable. And that brings me to an important question that I want to bring up with you is clinicians being comfortable with groups. I would say from my experience, I know more professionals who do not do groups than those who do groups. Should all professionals be facilitating some kind of groups or if someone is like, I'm really uncomfortable, I don't like groups, is that okay? Or is this something that as a professional, like in this field, like we'll say substance use, you know, counseling, is that something that people should all be doing? I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Whether or not every single mental health practitioner should be delivering groups, I don't think I can answer that. What I can say is they should be trained to. They they should at least know how. They should know how to deliver groups most effectively. I mean, clinical burnout is increasing in this country. You know, uh, providers are using groups more and more, whether it be to to meet quotas or just simply because of staffing shortages. So you never know when you might be asked to lead a group. If someone has severe, you know, social anxiety about something, I would never want to be the person that says you must do this right? But you should at least be trained to know how in case the situation arises. And, you know, that's, that's really our main goal at the Institute right now is making people aware that a training now exists that addresses these gaps, right? I mean, when you went through training, how much of your training of those thousands of hours talked about some of the things that we talked about here today, you had to figure them out on your own. That's because I, I, and that's the, that's what worries me and kind of bothers me is because I enjoy it so much and I like doing it, you know, learning, educating, trying new things, you know, just because this didn't work out, like, doesn't mean we just scrap it. Like some of the things that I've shared in here didn't go well right from the not. start. It, it it has taken like time and even years to really to craft that. But I also don't hold that to every other professional in this field. And that's where I sort of struggle at times, because if I want to increase and expand the amount of groups that we offer in our treatment programs and expand, you know, all that I've seen places be like, well, every counselor has to do a group. Like every, everyone must have one part of me. I like more of the natural growth, which is who wants to do one. What topic do you like? What, what sort of training is there for this? What, you know, I want them to be, you know, it's kind of like the same day that we're talking about other participants attending groups is I want the motivation. I want the, you know, the buy-in. I want them to want to do it, not just throw it at them that, well, every counselor should do one. If there's someone who really isn't ready for that, or they're not um, trained for it, and not just the topic, but I mean, just trained in group facilitation in general. I think that's a difference too, between 
I'm trained in a group topic or a curriculum, or I'm trained in group facilitation. Completely separate things. And I think you hit the nail on the head. If you want people to buy in and be excited about delivering groups, you need to get them ready for them, right? We need to make sure that they understand, hey, these are the benefits that you can have on your patients if you run an effective group. And these are the tools you need to do it. And so one thing, you know, when we're when we're talking about our, you know, workshop and, and training program with clinicians, one thing we, we always emphasize is these are tools, right? Yes, some of them are fun. Yes, some of them are engagement strategies. I mean, even when you said, you know, kind of trying to break that, uh, maybe that anxiousness or the or the nervousness with performing in front of other people, you know, yes, model with them first, be the mom, throw on a wig, you know what I mean? Have some lightheartedness in there because there are going to be times where you need moments of process affordance. There are going to be times where some really heavy stuff is shared, right? And so if we can make the moment, the, the times that are not that as enjoyable as possible, as maximizing with practice as possible, it's going to be better for everyone. And with these elicitation skills, with these um, engagement strategies, patient resistant behaviors goes down. And so the overall experience is better for everyone. What you said about, you know, not the first, not the second time, maybe something not working, being flexible, adaptable, that's completely normal. You know, we don't use a ball throw. I use my daughter's stuffed red panda, which is brownie when I'm using this as an example. The first time we used brownie in a group situation, someone just batted it away. (laughs) You know, same thing happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But guess what? The benefit of keeping up with the routine is is more important than that one patient swatting brownie away, right? And so kept up with it, didn't give up. And pretty soon the whole group, you know, fell in love with their new mascot. And now they're excited to see brownie when comes in, right? And so there, you need to be uh, persistent. Also, you need to forgive yourself, you know, have a little bit of grace with yourself. Not everything is going to work perfectly the first time. And even if it works perfectly in this group, you might have to adjust it for the next group because everybody's different, right? And each group might be a little bit different. I have two questions that I really want to get to. Sure. And before we sort of wrap up, the one that I've been looking at, talking about with others is humor in recovery. Mm -hmm. I think the treatment profession of substance use has not done the greatest job with accepting and using humor. It's often you like it's a defense mechanism and you're not taking things serious. You're a bad example for others. I think when, when humor is brought into treatment, it's often disregarded or shunned as someone's not taking their recovery seriously. Right. You see that a lot with groups. So if someone makes the group laugh or they, they, they tell a joke. Sometimes facilitators can be very quick to be like, this person's a negative influence or they're a distraction. You probably weren't anticipating this question at all, but is humor okay in group counseling? Is humor okay to have with a a group of people who are you know, in treatment, in recovery, just in general, is this, is this good to have? Patients are going to 
develop a stronger therapeutic alliance with someone who they view as authentic. So my question is, do you like humor? My guess is, is patients do too. And if you follow them out into the common area, you know, where everybody goes to smoke after group, which I always do. I love, I love talking to patients about their experience in group, about what, what they think is going to be effective about this time in treatment, things like that. They use humor. It's authentic to use humor. Being able to laugh, that might be the highlight of someone's day, especially if they've just finished detox or withdrawal. So don't be a robot. You know, of course, you're going to have to decide for yourself as a facilitator when something's appropriate. When does it cross the line between funny versus distracting? I, again, there, there is, there's never going to be a manual that works for everybody. Part of being an effective facilitator is reading the room and knowing when something's okay or not. And I'm sorry, that doesn't, that doesn't give you a solid answer, but that's the best I have. Oh, it's, it's, it's great. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to, to bring it up and talk about it because it's been something I've been having more conversations with people about, because I just think it's one of those areas where stigma is attached to that. Because if, if this was a different group of people, if this was someone else and they were using humor they would be like applauded. You know, if this was a, a group of people who were dealing with like a, like cancer or something like that, where they're being humor, like they would be encouraged. Like, wow, look at your good attitude. Like, yes, humor is going to help you, but I've just seen it more common when humor is used, especially around other participants. It's often looked at as a distraction that the person's not taking their recovery. Like I've seen it where facilitators have been like, this is why you relapsed last time because you can't take things serious. It's like, this is like, we cannot shun humor. There's ways to have to manage it and deal with it and do all that. But I don't think it, it's just a clear, you can't bring humor into this laugh outside of group or like laugh later. So I was, I just love getting your input on that question. I mean, again, it's going to, it's going to a lot, there's a lot of variables at play, right? I think once a group becomes more cohesive, again, if we go back to, to Yalom and we're more in the, um, you know, performing stages of group, you know, if it's a, it's a, if it's a closed group later on, I think people's personalities will come out a lot more, you know, even the facilitator can start using some humor at that point. Would it be appropriate for the facilitator to be telling jokes on the first session? I don't know. Maybe it depends on what the joke is, right? It, it, but getting people to laugh and just sharing, sharing a community of laughter is a good thing, right? It promotes relationship building. It promotes those ties that are so important to sustained recovery. And so, yes, it, it is can lower defenses. Laugh. Like a, a group <laughs> exactly. can be... Like we look at it as that's a defense mechanism because someone's avoiding, you know, taking responsibility or addressing some, you know, deep issue. But humor can also lower the defenses, especially around a group of people, especially around people who are trying to get more comfortable around one another. Humor can do that at not a big cost in, in my experience. Absolutely. And I know you have a hard out. So is there one more question you have? Yeah. So the, I think one of the, the, the kickers to drive in how organizations, you know, professionals can 
dive into more of this topic that we've discussed and to learn more about what, what you can do to help, you know, improve training and all that is what makes a good group. Like sometimes we, we talked before about like, well, the curriculum was followed, but also sometimes you ask like some people, what was, what do you really like about that group? And they may be like, well, the food was, man, it was really good. You know, they always have coffee. Um, and I always think those are like some nice perks to have. Like, like those are, those are nice things to, to have and make available when you, when you have those resources. But I don't think that that's something that, you know, I want to not going to help them outside. of <laughs> Right. It, so, it, yeah. So when we, when we, when we try to anchor this in, like what makes a good group, a plan, what I mean by that is if you can answer those three questions, what do I want my patients to be able to do? How will I know if they've done it? That's that measurement piece. And how does this connect to recovery? Making sure patients understand that. Starting off by reading that Cessna objective. This is what we're going to do today. And here is why. Are, are you willing to do that with me? You know, are, are you willing to, we're going to build that motivation. Are you willing to learn this tool that might help you with a goal of reconnecting with a family member or a goal of helping somebody else or a goal of uh, finding a better job? W whatever the topic is, I'm going to teach you a tool that can help with that. It maybe won't guarantee any outcome, but it, it will help. Is that something you're willing to do? Now, patients understand why they're there. They're bought into it. And then after the session, they don't go out and talk about the coffee. They talk about what they were doing in group. And that is a successful group. And that's where some of those ones with like the ball exercise, the one about the thoughts and them walking away and coming back and doing those, those, those role plays, like all of those. In the end, I think like what made those good groups, part of that was afterwards that's what they kept talking about exactly like they they kept sharing about those things and sometimes group was over and they were still on smoke break or they were at lunch now and there was still some conversation about like what was going on or what happened and to me that that means something as opposed to when group is over and it's like all of a sudden what just happened was thrown to the side and they're already thinking of other things that have kind of prioritized, you know, their, their mind. And those are, when I think about it, the ones that means like have meant so much and I've enjoyed so much when they have that type of outcome, that type of impact, right? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Unfortunately. And you know, my partner at the Institute, Nick and I, we've observed at over a hundred facilities across the country that doesn't happen. I don't want to just say very often, it it almost never happens, right? And so we want to make that the norm. After, after our training at the Institute, that is what patients talk about after the session. And that's that's what we want to see across this country. We're really, we're trying to elevate group therapy and become the gold standard of delivery. That's awesome. I mean, just, just talking to you about it, it's, I mean, I see you as, is one of the individuals in the institution is a place that's, you know, trailblazing it to move past where it's been stuck for so long. And I think that's, I think that's awesome. That is incredible to see. So where for listeners who like want to learn more about like what you do and like what you offer and all that, where's the best place for them to, 
And I'll share some of the articles you sent me so people have some more of that. But where can they go to to learn more about uh, what the Institute does? Okay, so you can visit us at grouptherapycertification.com. That's our website. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Andrew Bort. And I am more than happy to connect with anybody. Even if you're not interested in purchasing the training, that's fine. I'm more than happy to strategize. If you've had a particularly difficult group or you're not sure how to present a topic, again, my goal here is to really help more patients heal and find recovery, but also provide some relief to clinicians who are just burnt out right now and who maybe won't realize that how you deliver a group can really affect your experience as well. That's amazing. I, it, it was a, a pleasure to have you on and to talk, talk about these things. Even for me, someone that's done groups for a while, it it's revving up my interest to, to keep learning about it, you know, sharpen the saw, so to speak, and to, to make sure that I'm, I'm doing and, and learning those things about group as well. So I, I'm going to think I'm, safe to say this, but I believe like our work and our connection probably won't end here that yeah. there's, there's probably going to be some more in the future because this topic is uh, very important, I think to, to both of us. So I can't thank you enough for, for joining in this episode and talking to us about all this stuff related to group. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So listeners, Andrew Bort is, you know, an expert in, in group facilitation and engagement visit the website, follow him on LinkedIn. He, he responds. That's how me and him connected. So thanks for listening and hope you learned something. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Addiction and Recovery with Andrew J. Schreier. We're so glad you've joined us and invite you to connect further with the show and these topics at www.andrewjschreier.com. That's Andrew J. S-C-H-R-E-I-E-R.com. You can also email us directly at talkingaddictionandrecovery at gmail.com and connect on social media, Instagram at Talking Addiction and Recovery, Facebook, Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast, and Twitter at TalkAR underscore podcast. To stay connected and never miss an episode, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Until next time, friends, let's keep talking addiction and recovery.